You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So I've got lathe on the brain. Yes. Can't and wait. Years ago, I took some kind of personality test. I forget what it was. And one of the questions on it was like, is your work type prospecting, like going out and just digging around and seeing what you find. And I scored really high on prospecting. And that's how I'm approaching this lathe question. So I've had a couple of different machines quoted. We're looking at some Doosan machines, Miano machines, DMG Mori. Just for fun, I had an index trial machine quoted because it's completely out of my price range, but it's totally awesome. And the overall question is, do we want just a dual spindle lathe to do lathe parts? Or do we want to look at a bar-fed mill turn machine that can do five-axis work and could potentially take some of the parts off of our brother with the fourth axis and just turn those into bar-fed parts we run overnight? Now, the reality is we're not at the tipping point on any of those projects. We're just getting that 650 with its rotary productive. And so it's not the case that we have run out of capacity and we have to have overnight runs and we have to bar feed it. None of this is under time pressure. So I'm not in a position where I have parts that have to get made right now and I need to get a lathe in here. Mm-hmm. The reason we were looking at a lathe initially was because there is some outside job shop work relatively local to us that is available for us to bid on and potentially having a lathe and having some job shop work for that dual spindle bar fed lathe would subsidize the cost of that machine, put it on our floor, have it pay for itself and allow us to use the available spindle time on that machine for R&D, designing our own parts, doing whatever else we wanted to do with a dual spindle Y-axis lathe. Super awesome. But again, there, I'm not under contract to make any of these lathe parts currently. I don't have deadlines that I have to hit. So I'm sort of feathering the gas pedal and figuring out how aggressive I want to be on this. And the basic breakdown is I compare dual spindle turret-based lathes with something like a mill turn machine. Oh, we're also looking at Sugami. Mm -hmm. And Nakamura also has some interesting machines in this space. And Mazak, actually. And Okuma. There's There's a couple other machines that are adjacent that I haven't had quoted, but like the Okuma Multis, some of the Mazak Integrix stuff. A lot of those relatively compact bar-fed mill-turn machines. And the big difference is a lot of those smaller mill-turn machines are just a milling head. And you can put turning tools in it, but you just have a milling head. You don't have lower turret. Yeah, And the absence of the lower turret makes it essentially a... It's not... In my mind, not the same thing as a lathe. It doesn't. Can like, I say it would actually be worse? Yeah, because the it, what no one really shows you in these demos is the upper milling head tool changes are relatively slow. Like the spindles, typically the spindles have to stop all spindles, and with a lower turret, you can do turret changes on the fly. It is faster. Yeah, it's just the milling capabilities of live tool lathes is grossly underpowered and. It's not even close as far as rigidity, right? but continue. And so if your parts are primarily milled parts and have a few turned features, something like a mill turn machine where you're doing mostly milling at 20,000 RPM with Capto C4 or C5, awesome. 
And then you occasionally throw a turning tool in there in that milling head to do some turn features. That makes a lot of sense. If your part is primarily milling and you're doing it with a live tool turret lathe, you're going to have all limitations of those live tools. And the fact that you are locked into the orientation of your tool based on how you've set it up in your turret is also an additional limitation. Off-axis, B-axis stuff you can't do. But if your mix is primarily lathe parts and occasionally mill-heavy parts, the question of whether or not to go into a dual-spindle twin turret lathe versus a mill-turn machine, the mill-turn machines are way more expensive. They're just way more expensive. So like what? Like round numbers? Uh, like a great Miano twin turret, twin spindle lathe is like 300, 350. Okay. And some of the mill turn machines are like five, 600. Okay. Yep. It's not a completely unmanageable thing, but it is a large amount of a premium to pay if that machine's not actually going to be optimized for the work you're putting on it. Right. So at this point, probably I'm not trying to buy anything before the end of this year, even though the end of the year is when the deals get had because it's not in my interest to rush this and get maybe not quite the right machine. This will be the most expensive CNC machine I've bought to this point. And it will be the first machine that is pursued specifically for bar fed lights out machining, which is a whole new category of machining that we haven't really done before. Mm-hmm. in our shop. It's a known quantity. Lots of companies out there do that. There's a lot of information about it. We're not trying to do anything crazy or weird that's never been seen before. We're talking about bar feeding, pretty basic stuff. But still, it's going to have a learning curve. It's going to involve new tooling costs. It's going to involve new programming and simulation and proving out processes. There's a bunch of moving parts. It's not going to be just like buying another brother vertical, putting it on our floor loading some current programs into it and having it running production parts the day after it got installed. It's not going to be yeah. that. It'll be weeks. I could tell you. It'll that. be weeks. And like we currently, we have no lathe. We own no lathe tooling. We're going to have to do all that from scratch. Yeah. And so at this point, I'm leaning more toward just having the lathe purchase be a lathe purchase and not try to get into necessarily, certainly a mill turn machine that doesn't have a lower turret that's just a milling head is not interesting to me. Yeah, nope. A mill turn machine that has a lower turret and you can optimize lady stuff on lady tools mm-hmm. makes sense. And then you have the milling head for any milled features you need. That makes a lot of sense, but you're still paying a premium. You're buying a five axis machine, a bar fed five axis machine. So I'm continuing to investigate. I'm learning a lot more. I've learned more about this style of machine, these styles of machines, both the dual spindle lathes, Y-axis lathes, and compact mill turn centers in the past two weeks than I had ever known before. And it really is interesting to see the kinds of parts that suit them best. When you look at the machining demos that each of these companies puts out to highlight the capabilities of their machine. They obviously want to show its strengths. Mm-hmm. They want to show you the things their machine does best. If they've got really, really fast spindle to spindle handoff with great synchronization, they show you that. If they've got faster than average tool change times in their upper spindle milling head, they show you that. And realizing that 
every single one of those machines is going to come with some trade-offs you don't anticipate. And that certain things that you didn't see in the demo because they didn't show you in the demo because it's not what their machine is best at are going to be day-to-day realities that you have to live with running that machine. I don't want to sound hypocritical here, but I would never buy a two-axis lathe again, although my first lathe was a two-axis lathe because it turns every component, every part into a two-op part. So I would go with the minimum, minimum lathe starting point would be dual spindle. Now that jumps the cost up tremendously. Yep. On top of that, I would probably go live tooling and with live, actually, I would probably go with a Y turret because you can easily dial the center line of the tool rather than shimming. And so that's going to cut a ton of setup time out of it. And then I would go, okay, so Y axis, then you go live tooling and then you would probably go, yeah, upper milling head, but it has to have the lower because we were texting back and forth. I'm not a fan. Actually, we will never pinch turn, meaning the turret okay, is cutting. And that was what I wanted to ask next. We had this discussion. You're yeah. like, no pinch turning. And I said, I don't understand. Yeah. What's the problem? So you have pretty much two tools in the cut at the same time. That's fantastic. But what's also neglected is when you have two tools in the same part in the cut at the same time. There's most likely another part waiting in the right-hand spindle, which you could be safely turning on that one simultaneously with upper and lower. I've found that, well, I should say, John- So your main concern is that it's a false economy by putting two sets of tools on one side, you're putting nothing on the other side? That's a perfect way of saying it. It's a false economy, yeah. Now, you could pinch turn, and then when you don't have an opportunity to pinch turn, you could go work on the on the right-hand spindle with maybe the lower because your later operations are probably going to be live tooling in the milling head up top. Okay. But man, I'll tell you like one, one, oh man, I was giving a tour this probably a year ago. Oh, it was a guy that was applying and I was showing him around the shop and I said, yeah, this is our new beast. Check it out. Look in there. And I said, notice how it's going to turn on the lower and then it's going to mill in the upper and then it's going to pull part it off and then spit it. Well, all it did was turn on the lower, grabbed it, parted it off, did some back facing work, and the upper never fired. And I went, wait a minute, hold, g- give me a second, pause this tour, feed hold. Armando, I don't know why it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing when John set up this morning. And there are buttons where you can run it in upper mode only, a lower mode, or upper and lower. And Armando was doing a setup and he inadvertently pressed lower instead of upper and lower. And we had, luckily he had only made like, he had changed the bar, maybe did four or five parts that didn't have any of the milling features on it. Oh. So there's a million <laughs> ways to screw up parts on these hyper complex machines. Yeah, And if you don't have the timing codes just right, and you have a finish pass at 50 thou, and the other one is suddenly a hundred thou on the upper but that lower is not cutting and the upper yep. is doing and you're in like 4140, hardened 4140, yep. you're going to lose so much productivity on having to replace stuff, all that. So we just don't prioritize it. Just Well, one of the, I, I think I've mentioned a few times, like one of our company values is no half measures. So we don't want to use a tool on the lower and a tool on the upper and they're both doing half the work to complete it. Just have the lower do 100% of one feature. The upper can either do something after that or go work on the other spindle. That's my argument there. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I see your point. 
I think for me, it would be case by case dependent because one of the challenges in dual spindle lathes is balancing your main and your sub cycle and figuring out which features to cut. Some you can only cut in one way or the other because of tool access issues, but there are oftentimes some intermediate features. You could, you know, you could turn this OD near the midline of the part. You could turn this OD as part of the main operation or the sub spindle operation. Where does it balance out to manage your cycle time best? And certainly there may be cases where you have to do a certain thing on the main. You can't do it on the sub. Mm-hmm. And the fastest way to get through that main spindle op is to pinch turn on it. I'm not opposed to saying no pinch turning. I'm not opposed to pinch turning in principle. I don't have a, mil- a machine that can do it. So for me, it's a hypothetical question. Yeah. But the idea as a tool, it makes sense. If you have a machine that can put two tools in the cut, there may be circumstances where two tools in the cut can be made very safe, very repeatable, very dependable. But the same thing, like that's the Paul Simon song. There's 50 ways to make a defect. The song, 50 ways to leave your lover. Yep. Yeah. I, you could probably make a 50 ways to make a defect version of that song. Yeah. But certainly anytime you multiply the complexity, the chance that you go off the rails incidentally goes way, way, way up. And or, the cost or catastrophically. of catastrophically. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Same thing. The cost yeah. of crashing that $600,000 machine is a really, really bad day. Yeah. It erases pretty much all the speed gains you got. That's why in the hierarchy of our improvements, it's always safety, quality, simplicity, speed. And the one we don't even talk about is cost. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would, I, I don't know. So I think what you're picturing, it be, you being, I say this with all due respect, you being not a lathe guy is there's factors that like, like a lathe guy will, if he wants to cut a perfectly within tolerance shoulder and the parts sticking out, he won't bring it to a Z and then go perfectly straight back. Right. He's going to program it. in a taper really? because of okay. part deflection. Gotcha. So there's that. So pinch turning suddenly now, well, I know how to make a perfectly straight part with a turret, but now when I'm pinch turning, oh wait, now do do we program in a taper? What do we do? So there's that type of stuff, the unspoken stuff that the the seasoned lathe guy is going to be like, go for it, dude. You'll find out. I've been told in some cases that it actually helps to keep the part less deflecting because you've got balanced tool pressures from both sides, but you can also have unbalanced tool pressures from both sides if you're pinch turning. You, so, you, yeah, you can have inserts that are worn that deflect yep. more. You can have inserts that are off center in the Y. There's lots of ways to screw those parts up. 50 ways to make a defect. That's right. Yeah. Well, oh. that's exciting. What's the high end? What's the most expensive machine you've gotten quoted? Oh, the, f- by far the most expensive one was that index trial. It's a seven figure machine. Jeez. I was looking at their G200 just for kicks. I watched the demo. I had seen it at IMTS. And I'm like, this machine is a spaceship. It's awesome. Wow. And so I have a friend who works for that company and said, hey, what is the price point? I did not have them send me a formal actionable quote. I just said, hey, what's the starting base price on this machine? He's like, oh, that starts a little over a million dollars. File that one away for reference for later. When I've got seven figures, I need to sock away into some kind of expensive equipment at the end of the year. Yeah, that's okay, a, like a lottery a purchase. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so on the low but, end, have you set a minimum threshold? Have I talked you out of a, a two-axis lathe? Yeah. So we actually were looking at the, I think the Haas DS30Y yep. was kind of the base level machine that we were looking at. And 
it seems like a perfectly serviceable machine, but at the same time, I don't intend to become a Haas shop. I don't intend to ever put any Haas verticals on the floor. And while the Haas control has a lot to commend it, the reality of learning whatever this lathe is, it's going to be a new control for us to learn. Yeah. Because we're not going to have a brother lathe. Right. And so what I want to do is not necessarily lock myself in like the next control sets the, you know, charts the course of our destiny. We will never deviate from this control, but it's probably going to be FANUC. And the reason it's probably going to be FANUC is just because that's what a lot of machines in that category of dual spindle Y-axis live tool lathes are using. A lot of the Mianos have that. And I've already got a lathe guy who knows FANUC and is comfortable with it. So it wouldn't be a thing that I would have to learn as much. I have to learn it enough to be competent on it, but I don't have to be the setup master on it from the get-go. Yeah. Look, there's a reason why I have FANUC-based or FANUC-based lathes is because my first hire knew FANUC. And so, yeah, no, I'm all for it. Uh, Look, it's not terrible. I just really don't like it. Oh, no. I find it unintuitive in the extreme, Yeah, but it is what it is. I don't get to optimize the world, sadly. Although so, I mean, if so, I, so brother, if, brother legit does not make lathes. They make that, that M140, the lathe yeah. type machine. Yeah. The M140 and the M200 are both 30 taper machining centers that you can mount a lathe tool in and turn with. Yeah. It's not a lathe. Well, when I looked at it, it had like a painfully low number of tools. Yeah, I think they have 21 or 22 tools. And, and some of those are going to be mill, some are going to be turn. Yuck. Yeah, and, and it, basically the use case they show is like, hey, if you've got aluminum castings that have some larger OD turned features, you can get really nice concentricity and you can, and it's like, yeah, that makes sense. If I'm turning basically an eight inch round part mm-hmm. where most of it's mill features and a lot of the surfaces aren't even being touched because I'm decking a few spots and I'm drilling and tapping some holes, which the brother kills at loves drill and tapping. And then I've got a few places where I'm turning large kind of loose ODs. Yeah. This machine makes sense, Mm -hmm. but it's not a lathe. I fell in love with the M series when John Saunders toured orange vice and uh, Eric's got one. And I go, oh man, that's so great. But there are two things that were the deal killer. A, you have to hand load parts or robot load. You mm-hmm. can't just saw a 12 foot bar to take two or three cuts and throw a either three or four foot piece in. The other thing was the number of tools, but dang, I think later Eric said, if there's one machine he'd love to put into his garage as a hobby machine, it would be that one. Cause you can make parts slowly. If it were complex, you could turn them, you could mill them. And it's also five axes. I love it for that reason, but it's a really cool machine. Yeah. It just doesn't fit what I do. So, Hey, I went to West tech last week. I saw some really cool machines that I had admired from a distance. And okay. one of them was a Kitamura horizontal yep. 250 millimeter. One of my customers, Josh Ogle has one mm-hmm. and he was like the first customer to put a rotovice on it. And I swear I was talking to the the sales guy, he, and I said, man, seeing it in person, like the Rotovice is perfect for this machine. He's like, yeah, do you know this guy named Josh Ogle? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, we talked about that. But the uh, another machine I saw was this ridiculously small comp, like it was narrow. It looks like it was like 48 inches wide that was a full five axis machine. 
And the parts that they were machining on this, they had this one demo part. Can't remember if it was on that machine or on the horizontal itself, but they had this little piece. It was probably like an inch and a half square piece of aluminum. Maybe it was a steel. But what they did is they went and they machined about three quarters of an inch. They hogged out the center, but they left 16 posts that were about three quarter inch long that were about two and a half thousandths in diameter. So he's like, take a look at that part. And I'm like, oh yeah, cool. It's got a pocket. And then you look closer. It's these 16 tiny little like pillars sticking up that are two and a half thou diameter three quarter inch long. And I'm like, okay, that's actually impressive. I have not seen that. Yep. So that would probably be my next machine that I would look at. I know it's, we're not, maybe we're moving away from the lathe conversation, but like this, it's like a my center 250. So that my center 250 is a machine that I've wanted for a long time. And really? I, oh, I drooled all over okay. it. My you first saw one in day. person and everything? Yes. And I also looked at the my center 300 and one of my friends bought a my center 300 and had an awful time with it no you just got hard really he just got a terrible terrible lemon okay and went through several spindles and just could not get answers and eventually i think he unloaded the machine it was like he and i spent an afternoon shoulder to shoulder at the kitamura just like drooling on the window looking through (laughs) looking at this machine and he bought it and i didn't and it was a disaster. For wow. Okay. And that kind of killed that line for me. Really? Yeah. Not, not necessarily completely. And as a compact 30 taper. Yeah. Horizontal. Yep. The My Center 250 makes a ton of sense. And if I had parts that would really justify that kind of workflow, it's super compelling. It's a really cool machine. You know what? It is here's another thing I'm going to break my own heart here, but it has the same output as a brother R series with a T 200 rotary with a couple of We like, we've sold that package several times. Yep. It's the same thing. It's a pallet changing machine compact. And I think it started at like under 200 grand, if I remember correctly. Yeah. F- for the right kind of work, it's a great value. Yeah. And if you hook it up to a pallet pool mm-hmm. and can do a high mix where you have some tombstones and some rotovices and some this and that, yeah, you can get really cool work out of it. For what I'm doing, <laughs> it's not a great fit for us That's right true. now. That's true. So you know what I also learned at West Tech that I really liked is that it is like a true Lego type machine. So Haas, I had to buy the pallet pool. It's not field installable. What's another thing? Oh, I have a VF2 that the auto door was not field installable. That changed. Now I think it is, but not the model I bought. You can change out the tool changer in these Kitamuras. So stock, it comes with something like a 42 and you can go up to 60, 80, 120, something like that. But it's modular and a 10 station pallet pool can be added after the fact as well. Like, yep. oh, that that's kind of game changer stuff. Because if you remember our story with our lathes, is that I had a Doosan LSYC, 220 LSYC that we ran for about three or four years and then put a bar feeder in on it retroactively so that we could increase our productivity and go lights out. That's that that's what I loved about this Kitamura. It was like, oh, I can do that. I can 
add on to it as the company grows, it can grow on. And that's not a lot of companies do that. Do you think, so horizontals without a pallet pool are an interesting thing. A lot of companies are like, well, that's half a car. If you have a, if you have a horizontal, you better have a pallet pool. And I, mean, I understand that, but that drastically increases your tool-up costs. And unless you actually have the work to justify the pallet pool, having six or eight identical tombstones yeah. gives you the ability to run long, sustained runs of production. But then if you make one significant part revision, all of a sudden you've got all this duplicate fixturing. So my story of buying our Haas EC400 is, okay, I want the pallet pool because I want to load up lots of parts. I want to have, which turned into a product, our horizontal pallet system, the HPS. There's two of those. So basically it's seven Haas pallets that we can run in and out of the machine. So Mm -hmm. four of them will be rotovices. Two of them will be an HPS. One is blank that we can either throw a vice on or we can actually use to fixture the tombstones when we make the HPS for customers. That purchase alone was $90,000. And if you're going to get that, you have to upgrade from 30 tools to 100 tools. And so that was another, I don't even want to, it was maybe 40,000, something like that. They really get you. They get you good. You buy a a machine that seems reasonable at starting price, maybe call it 225. And the next thing you know, you sign a contract and you're like, how did this get over 400 this quickly? Yeah. Like real quick. So yeah, not to mention all the other upgrades that we added on. And then tooling alone, we sold a VF2, but only 30 tools came out of that. But now there's still 70 tools, 70 pockets that we got to fill. And I thought it would take a while until we have a mature, established set list for this machine. My guy, Alex, told me just a few days ago, he's like, we're using about 92 pockets. I'm going, you got to be kidding me. That escalated quickly. So yeah, I'm glad I did it. I'm not yeah. looking back at the cost. It's like Anchorman's like, that got out of hand fast. Real fast. So <laughs> yeah. Well, as we come up on Black Friday, do you normally see a bump around Black Friday in sales, demand, production numbers? Is it busy for you? No. It's like the business community goes home and shops on Amazon for the most part. We're, Interesting. We're, we're going to try a Black Friday, Cyber Monday sale. Um, and we'll just see. I think we're going to do, I don't know. We haven't decided. We also need to create a campaign to announce our Max 4, our small four-axis pallet system. There's a Max 4 and there's the Max 5. I showed that in the shop tour videos shop update video, I guess you could say. And so that's live on our website right now. Anyone can buy it as we speak, but I I don't know, maybe we announce that on a Black Friday and do an early adopter discount on that. Or what's your take on that? So we normally spend October and November getting ready for Black Friday because a lot of our OEM clients want us to pre-build additional inventory for them so that they can absorb a sales spike. If they do a sale or a promotion or a discount bundle, you buy these four things together, you get X number of dollars off, et cetera. And there's a lot of different ways of structuring promotions. Sometimes companies will do exclusive items. They're only available right around Black Friday. They will launch new products right around Black Friday. They will launch uh, revised or updated versions of existing products around Black Friday. It's also a great time oftentimes to clearance out old versions of things, and then relaunch the next thing either in December or in January. Like, okay, guys, we're closing the door on this line we've been running for the past three or four years. 
We've got the last batch of production on the shelf. We've got a limited amount of inventory. We're discounting them this far. When they're gone, they're gone. Mm -hmm. People generally respond to those kinds of things by purchasing. But what it creates on our end, since we're handling manufacturing and fulfillment, is off, can be a really stressful surge in sales. Yeah. And so what we do for our company is I don't do a Black Friday sale. What we often do and what we're doing right now is we do certain items, we discount them heavily, and then everything else stays at regular price. Okay. And we'll run that sale for several weeks leading up to Black Friday because I can't compete with Best Buy and Amazon and Walmart to get my stuff in front of your eyeballs the weekend of Black Friday because mm-hmm. there's just so much ad spend everywhere yeah. on that. Everyone's running promotions. So I'm only looking for a relatively small slice of the market, and I would rather give them a great deal on some things that they want a few weeks in advance and get their order taken care of before the craziness happens. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. So it's more in my interest to saw the peak off the mountain and dump it into the valley and have the whole thing be a little more level, even if the overall revenue could have been higher if I accepted a little more yo-yoing. The yo-yoing itself creates problems. Certain things, you want to stress test your systems. Black Friday sales can crash people's websites, but just your emotional health and People get stressed out when everyone's behind and everything's busy and everything's slammed and fulfillment's like, we don't have enough of this thing. We're backordered production. You need to make more of this today. If you can avoid just putting everybody in a pressure cooker, avoid putting everybody in a pressure cooker. I love nobody, that. nobody is their best self in a pressure cooker. On the YouTube channel, sorry. That speech I gave at the DSI event, I just want to really put in a bunch of B-roll to illustrate what I'm talking about. And interject some things I, I just had to cut out time-wise. But I talked about how peace is one of our other company values, is one of the main ones. And so you can do a Black Friday sale, have a ton of money come in, but you can ha- it's kind of artificial and you'll never know if you didn't run the sale, would the money have trickled in anyways? And then what did you trade for that? You traded lower profit margin and you broke peace in the company. Uh, it's not really a, a trade that I want to make typically. So that's why we've never done a Black Friday sale. I've just always been hesitant to do that. So I like your approach, it, though. That's the good. other thing is Lawrence Steinmetz. Great book, How to Sell at Margins Higher Than Your Competitors. I know I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I keep coming back to it because the reality of discounting very often is you do a lot more work to make the same amount of money mm-hmm. that you would have made if you had sold fewer units at a better margin. That's right. And if the discount allows you to bring in new customers and you treat that discount against profit as a, an, a cost of acquisition, a CAC, rather than saying, okay, we had to do 120% of our normal workload, but our profits remained level because we discounted that extra 20% of production away. Yeah. It's not a good solution. And there was a guy who I I remember seeing an interview, actually Gary Vaynerchuk interviewing a restaurant owner. What was this guy's name? Mm. And there was a really interesting observation at the very end. John Taffer was the Mm. guest. Yeah. And they were talking about how to get repeat customers. They were talking about lifetime value. And I found this fascinating. We were talking about this in our morning meetings this week. I've run into the exact same thing in Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy where he talks about how 
a business that orients its approach toward maximizing repeat business produces actions that are indistinguishable from mutual cooperation, where I'm wanting to do things that benefit you so much that you will continue to come back and do business with me, where he said the opposite is a bar in a tourist town. They think they're going to see you one time and they're trying to extract the maximum amount of dollars out of you in that single interaction because they're never going to see you again and they don't care about you. But what John Taffer said in the, in the interview with Gary Vaynerchuk is that essentially, if you get a person into your restaurant once, the chance of them coming back is maybe 30%. I'm making up the numbers, but he actually gives percentages. If you get them in a second time, the chance of them coming back a third time is maybe 45, 50%. If you get them in a third time, the chance of them coming back for a fourth and a fifth visit is like 90%. And so there's this very, very sharp curve where once you get a person a certain number of times you default to being a restaurant they take their friends to. You Mm -hmm. default to being a place that they go to. And so his whole approach was finding ways to maximize the chance that you get them for the first three things. And so his approach was a person comes in and the server says, welcome to Lenny's. Have you been here before? And if the person says no, first time here, the server puts a red napkin on the table, not a standard white napkin. And that way the manager immediately knows this is a first time customer comes over, greets them, talks to them. At the end of the meal, whatever they ordered, the manager comes over and says, how was the meal? I see you got the chicken. How'd you like the chicken? You got to try our ribs. And then he hand writes a card for them at the table that gives them a free entree the next time they come in. They can't claim it online. It's not for Uber Eats or DoorDash. They can't have it delivered. They have to come into the restaurant and they have to have the card with them. But they come in the second time, they turn in that card for their free entree and you put a blue napkin on their table. And the manager knows this is a person on their second visit. They brought in a card and redeemed it. The manager goes over, says, thanks for coming in. So glad to have you back. At the end of their meal, it comes over and says, hey, I saw you tried the ribs. Next time you come in, you got to try our cheesecake and gives them a second card for a free dessert and they have to come back. And so at the end, John Taffer says, I've gotten this person in three times. It's cost me a free rib dinner and a free cheesecake. And now the chances I'm going to continue to have their business is way, way up. And that's about the cheapest advertising I could do. It's way cheaper than a billboard to give a person a free entree and a free dessert and get those repeat visits. Sure. And then he said, but don't discount. People get addicted to discounts. They don't get addicted to free. Yeah. Well, that there was a diminishing kind of discount there. A free entree is expensive. Free dessert is less expensive, less of a hit. Yeah. And by that time, if you don't, if you're not coming back because of rapport. But even there, the idea that if on Black Friday, our deal was not a discount, but we gave away some free stuff, Mm -hmm. people will still get excited about that because they're getting real value. But if you run a big sale, if everything on your website's 25% off every Black Friday, tons of people will wait. Can I tell you that I wait till Black Friday to buy stuff from MariTool? Because historically really? they've, they've done it and I'm like, oh, it's October. We could, can we just wait? Can we wait till the end of November? That type of thing, which is really? terrible. I had a customer that- Wait a year up, to buy something? <laughs> no. Well, yes. <laughs> to get to the punchline. Let's see. What did we do? I think the Rotovice was on sale recently. We did a little overproduction push and we said, let's just put these in people's hands. I think we offered, gosh, what was that? Free shipping, 10%. So I, can't, I really can't remember. But one guy said, hey, I know you ran a big sale last 
year when IMTS was going on. Are you going to do an IMTS sale this year? And then my answer is no, because IMTS is every other year. And then he asked, are you going to do an IMTS sale next year? And I said, probably. Maybe. Probably. And, yeah. and he said, I'll wait until next year's IMTS sale to buy a row device. And I went, okay. And I couldn't articulate or pinpoint why that just seemed like bad strategy to me on the customer's part. But I yeah. realized he didn't see the value, all the money he could make, all the efficiency he could be gaining by having a rotovice on his machine making for parts for over a year. He would rather save the five or 600 bucks. And so, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out what to do with that scenario where someone is literally pinching pennies to, what's what's the saying? Stepping over dollars to save pennies. That's it. Yep. People's assessment of the relative cost and value of things is often really warped. Not because they wouldn't understand if you explained to them, but because they're only considering one side of the equation. And they're like, ah, this could be lower if I wait. It's like, yeah, but there's a downside. It's a trade-off. Right. Everything's a trade-off. It's trade-offs all the way down. Right. Yeah. I think if I had that conversation over again, I would just say, look, dude, it pains me to hear that. Let's split the difference. You're seven and a half percent off. Okay. But please, do you also see that instead of making one part with three setups, you're making one part with one setup and then throwing three extra parts per cycle? Like, I need you to see that. I need you to be that customer. So, yeah. yeah. I just, for me, it's convicting. What are the dollars I'm stepping over to save pennies? Certainly, that's like the bootstrapper in me that I'm trying to purge. We're not in bootstrap mode. I need to make you know critical decisions. That deal to buy the, the grinder, I'll leave that people can go back and listen to the previous episodes, but I'll leave the brand out at this point. But it came back, hey, that machine's still available. You interested? And it's like, no, because I'm not buying on price at this point. I'm buying on quality, on value, on capability. Sorry, we're waiting strategically until we need the Okamoto. We don't have space for it right now. Once the assembly room is done, we can actually buy a grinder. But we're buying for quality and we're buying for, we're definitely not buying for price at this point. Or you could say, yes, we're only interested in buying from people who are not you. (laughs) Yes. Say, have you mowed your lawn yet at your facility? Cleaned up the graffiti. Yeah. Yeah. So understanding how I think about things in an incomplete way is I think a major part, one of the single biggest things that's been of value to me in part being part of a business owners group like Vistage, or what is yours called? Convene. Convene. Is being around the table with people who are older and more experienced than you, who usually manage larger companies than you, and having them say, have you thought about this? Or they hear you describing a problem and, you, and they say, I don't think you're seeing that accurately. It that's, sounds like you're leaving yep. something out. That is the best value in those high cost business groups. And this is a Rory Sutherland in the book, Alchemy, talks a lot about psychological value. And this is true in all kinds of fields. 
people value things that they pay more for. They enjoy things more because they paid more for them. Mm-hmm. If you go to a three-star Michelin restaurant and it's 250 bucks per person for the entree, you will actually probably enjoy the food relatively to its quality more than a decent meal at a much less expensive restaurant. But the same thing with like people who want to work out and get in shape. They buy some free weights, they put them in the garage, and they don't use them. I did this. I have some free weights in my garage. I don't use them currently. But if you pay for a personal trainer and it's like hundreds of bucks a month to have this personal trainer meeting with you one-on-one, people show up. People don't value free things the same way they value things they pay for, and they don't value discounted things in the same way either. Yep. But Can I tell a quick story along those lines? Sure, go for it. So, So two things jump out with me personally. Years ago, we went to dinner with my wife's parents. We went to a high-priced steakhouse where we bought like the filet mignon was like $80 with no sides and the sides are $25. So I just want mashed potatoes and Brussels sprouts. It's another 50 bucks. And we were driving home and I said, sweetheart, I'm grateful that your parents covered the meal to celebrate whatever event we were celebrating. It just wasn't that good. And she's like, yeah, gosh, I feel so bad. But it was like, it's filet mignon. It should be amazing. My eyes should be watering. It should be incredible. Yeah, I don't know. And then we go to another steakhouse, which is in our... So this is a fancy steakhouse in LA. We went to a steakhouse, kind of like the the blue collar steakhouse in Simi Valley. And filet mignon there is 40 bucks. It was delicious because I paid for it. (laughs) You have to enjoy it now. You have to. Going even further back... I worked as a vice president of operations at a website development company, early 2000s. And we had this contest where we were giving away three fully designed websites. And we had literally like over a thousand applicants and we Hmm. had three winners and we sent out, we said, congratulations, here's the three winners. There was not a lot of social media. So we just gave the names and we emailed them. Did you know that not one of those winners redeemed that coupon for the free website, in which totaled thousands and thousands of dollars worth of work? Ah. And I personally called them and said, hey, I, you won the contest. Do you know that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't engaged. You haven't, yeah, we're just not ready. Okay, well, we're going to put an expiration date on this. Is, is 90 days good enough? Yeah, I think so. And I'm calling back at 90 days. We just need a little bit more time. Ultimately, I left the company before I found out whatever happened. But a free is not great. People do not value what they don't pay for. Very early valuable lesson in my career. And for me, joining a business owners group like Vistage, when I looked at it, I'm like, okay, it's one day a month. I can afford one day a month, although a whole day, any whole day is a lot. Yeah. And then I looked at the cost and I'm like, "Mm, it's pretty expensive. It's over 10K a year. Yep. And... I thought two things. The first was, if I can't get more value out of it than I'm paying for it, I'm not good at my job. That's right. And I have no way of knowing what kind of gems I may stumble upon. I should take a year and try this out. Yeah. And as long as if I didn't have the cash to be able to pay for that, I probably wouldn't have done it if I had to be putting that on a credit card and rolling the balance each month. Mm -hmm. But I had some cash reserves. I could afford to pay that monthly fee. 
and not have it be a thing that put me in the red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it certainly motivates me to come to those meetings better prepared with questions to ask, with topics in mind, with notes that I've made for myself, and then be fully engaged in those meetings. And actually, after a while, I've stopped taking my laptops, my laptop to those meetings entirely. My phone goes in my backpack. I show up with a small white lined notepad. Mm-hmm. And I don't want any notifications, any emails, any social media, anything. Yeah, that's right. Interrupting my time while I'm there. I want to be fully present around the table, listening to what's being talked about and thinking it through. And that actually made a significant difference in the quality of my interaction with the group and the number of things that I learned. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're sitting there around a table and somebody's talking and you've got your laptop in front of you and you're like, eh, this guy runs a company that's kind of different from mine. This isn't applicable. I wonder if there's any customer service tickets in Freshdesk and you pop open a tab five minutes later, you've missed something mm-hmm. that would have been really useful to you. Sure. And you're wasting your money. Yeah. For my group, I'll use real numbers. It's $1,200 a month. Obviously, if you're a startup and you can afford it, you can join, but they say the floor is about two to 3 million. All the companies in my group, there's I think 14 members, it's 5 million and up. I think the top line is probably in the 50, 60 million dollar. So if I have access, now I've been in this group in February, it'll be five years. If I have access to a CEO of a 50 million dollar company that I've broken bread with, I've driven out, we've hung out, our families know each other, I am a fool to leave that behind. And it was tough convincing my wife, hey, I'm going to join this thing. It's $1,200 a month. And she's like, what? That's like a luxury car payment. Well, back then in 20. yeah, Tina was now I mean, around here. That's practically a mortgage payment. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I've told her like, Hey, every year, at least once per year, I will get a gem that maybe it's something that kind of redirects me that shelters me from potential liability. That is definitely the downside of that mistake would be greater than $14,400 in that year. Oh yeah. It's a win. It's a win. Huge win. Yeah. So, and every year, like every other meeting, there's just like life changing or career changing, business changing stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. That was close. You also, you get to hear yourself differently when other people say it. You'll hear somebody saying something. You're like, man, I don't understand why this guy doesn't see that. That's obviously not going to work. I don't understand why this guy is still struggling to wrap his mind around this problem. And then when they're talking about your problem, somebody else says later, yeah, well, what what you're talking about, Andrew, sounds a lot like the thing Jay just mentioned a few minutes ago. And you're like, no, it doesn't. Does it? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it when one of the activities we do, it's called a major challenge worksheet and we fill it out. It's very structured and we go around the table and there's two rounds of clarifying questions and then you come to solutions. So very structured because CEOs, we're all ready to pop off and give our opinion. But there's been times where I'm glossing over some of the details and, and I can't think of a detail, but someone will say, wait, 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 what did, what did you just say? Oh, I know. One of them was, it was like someone asked, how many hours does this employee work per week? And I said, oh, 40, everyone works 40. And the guy said, exactly 40? I said, yeah. And he said, on the dot, four zero point zero. I said, yeah. And then all everyone else, all the other CEOs are like, wiggling in their chairs. And one guy said, do you have a time clock? I said, no, I just write down 40 hours. He's like, dude, you're going to get nabbed. What are you talking about? I can't remember what the term, there's like an acronym, but if they go to the employment division, EDD, I think it's called here in California, 
and they say, hey, this guy didn't pay me what I was due, they will come audit your time cards. And when they see that everyone is exactly 40.0 hours, they're like, you didn't track their time accurately. There's no way that everyone had perfect time cards for the past five years and (laughs) you lose. And even that in passing where someone just pushed back, pushed back. And at the time I was thinking, this is off topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Okay. He's 40. Okay. Big deal. He's 39.8. He's 40.4, but it's all good. No, it's not. It's not. It is not at all. And I, that just was not on my radar because I didn't have the perspective that I might have rotten employees that might one day sue me, or I didn't have it. The thought that I might one day piss someone off to the point where they storm out and try and extract money fairly from me for that that type of uh, mismanagement. That right there, that was in my first year, 2019. And I came back and I'm like, sorry, guys, you're going to hate this. Time clocks. Time clocks. (laughs) So, (laughs) And even at that, we started using, it's a service on the clock where you can punch in and out on your phone. It does like geotagging. I think that's what it's called. So even at that, they said, oh, you have them use their cell phones to clock in and out. Yeah. You need to give them a cell phone stipend because they're using their personal cell phones to clock in and out for business purposes. And those are technically outside of work when they pull out their phone to click in. And you're also using Signal. Everyone's required to have Signal in the company for inner company communications. Yeah, you're going to want to throw on just $5 per month to cover their cell phone bill for that. That'll get you past Mm. it. I'm like, thank you very much. And how many of those things would you be aware of? without that type of like higher collective crowdsourcing from a group of CEOs. Yeah. Because there is no substitute for having that level of knowledge around the table. Totally. Doesn't mean that every suggestion or idea or question I get asked is relevant. Oftentimes those guys can go off on rabbit trails or they can start to dig into a question I have. And it becomes obvious to me that something about what I've communicated, they didn't understand. I didn't Mm -hmm. get, I didn't get enough information over to them they're looking at a thing that isn't actually the issue. Yep. But more often than not, that's not the case. More often than not, when I present something, they have a lot of good questions. Yeah. So one and guy, when we were talking about this second company that I started, which eventually, I'm sorry, I keep teasing it, but I will eventually go public. So he said, we were talking about what size building we should get. And he says, well, what have you written into your pro formas? And I went, well, What's that? I know of pro forma invoices. I know pro forma means information like ahead of time. And I didn't know the context of you need to have pro forma business plans. Like once you achieve these milestones, it moves you into this stage. And I'm like, well, I normally do that in my head. I just don't call them pro formas. And I certainly don't write them down. I may have bullet points. I don't organize them, but thank you very much. And that was a just huge. And those pro formas, and it dovetails in with like kind of the rocket fuel. I'm sorry, the the traction book that I mentioned. It's one yep. of those things that like you don't know the information, you don't know how to use it until you hear someone say, "Well, Jay, here's what you need to do." You have different stages of business. There's there's startup or infancy, childhood, adolescence, maturity. Those are four basic pro formas. You should do that. Have them written out so you're not making crazy decisions or emotional decisions when you're not ready. Oh. Thank you very much, Chris. That makes perfect sense. Thank you, And sir. that right there is value for money. Right. Exactly. So. so I'm actually up against the clock. I need to run out. I have a rehearsal this evening for my band that's doing a Christmas concert in December. Fun. So I need to go get my bass out. 
get my guitar out, get my pedals all set up and have a great rehearsal, but good to talk to you and we'll catch up next week. All right. See you then.